If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The main long weekend is almost here. Do you have enough funds for all those wieners? Oh! Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon, it is 3.08, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson in Hamilton today. Thanks for joining us, great to have you here. All right, uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, the city has rejected the uh, tent encampment, that uh, the zone for that that we talked about yesterday. We're going to talk about that in just a sec. Uh, the other story uh, regionally in uh, Ontario, Peel Region breaking up, but they seem to be happy about it. Uh, Mississauga and Brampton and Caledon all um, going their own way. We'll be talking about that coming up a little later on, what it all means. Apparently, they've been asking for it for a long time. Uh, more news from the Bank of Canada. They are very concerned about household debt, um, which uh, if interest rates continue to uh, rise, they're flat right now. The Bank of Canada leaving them steady uh, could obviously cause some concern. If you're flying west yet, they're starting to cancel some flights, so make sure you uh, are aware of what's going there. If you have a WestJet ticket, the pilot's uh, obviously uh, on strike at this point or uh, certainly talking about uh, in, intense labor negotiations. We'll leave it at that. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, the um, Parliamentary Budget Office uh, talking about the carbon tax going up another 17 cents uh, per liter. Uh, you know, this just drives me nuts. Canadians supply less than 2% of greenhouse gases. We all want to save the planet. We all want to do our thing. But let's do it by getting the world off coal. Kind of like the Fasco's doing and using clean Canadian liquid natural gas in order to get there. Instead, we just keep raising taxes, raising taxes. I remember talking about this during the Ginty government. It's like, it's like the, 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 the liberals are using, um, the environment because we know Canadians are sensitive to it. We want to save the planet. We want to make sure there's a planet here for our kids, uh, which is why many are talking about getting rid of coal. However, um, our government just wants to shut down anything that can get us off of coal, like liquid natural gas, which is just absolutely nuts in my mind, because we're shouldering the world's burden here while, you know, presenting less than 1.5% of greenhouse gases, which is just nuts. And I've said, as I said, during the McGinty government, they're using this to print money. They're using this to make money. They know you're sensitive about it. I'm going to uh, save the planet, so I'm going to pay an extra buck, and then an extra buck, and then another buck. And, of course, the planet doesn't get saved. We're not any closer to our our targets. Uh, we're out of jobs. We're handing uh, people money because they can't, can't have they, they don't have work. I mean, it's just it's insane. We're just going in circles and circles and circles. And and the prime minister is so busy saving the planet, he's forgetting about Canadians. And again, less than two percent. 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases. Shutting off the tap ain't going to do a damn thing. You want to get your clean liquid natural gas, though, to places like India, places like uh, Europe and such, which are begging for it to get off coal and to be not held hostage by Russia? That's the solution to the problem. It's not continuing, continually banging Canadians and, and because you need to raise more money. And that's what it is. It, it's a money raiser for the liberals. And it has been for 20 years. And whenever they need more money, they just scare you that the planet's coming to an end. And that we've got to do more. And, of course, we have to do more. But, again, 
paying more tax to the liberal government, I don't believe, is, uh, is the way to go about this uh, in any way. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, towards uh, later on in the show, uh, rather towards the end of the show. All right, the other big issue, which uh, was here locally, we talked about it yesterday, was the tent uh, encampment zones. These were a proposal for allowing certain zones that could be uh, service with the you know the amenities that you need and such in these encampment zones, which are you know just growing leaps and bounds. I mean, it's just it's it's terrible what has happened. And uh, a new a housing services idea seeking the creation of a sanctioned encampment zone in Hamilton has been sent back to the drawing board for further study. I don't pretend to know what the solution is here. However, uh, I think the biggest question you have to ask is what happens in November and December? Where does this go? And I'm not sure the politicians who are jumping on board this and voting for it have really thought that through or, well, we just got to do this now and we'll worry about it later. Um, you're creating another problem instead of a solution. And people voting for it, including the mayor, Andrea Horvath, I must admit, I am surprised at that because as a city, you got to deal with this stuff in the wintertime as well. You've got to find a solution, not a Band-Aid. And you know, you have to think at the end of the day, people want opportunity. They want opportunity. They want the chance to support themselves. They don't want to have handouts. They don't want charity. They want opportunity. They want a great job. They want the ability to afford their housing and move forward in life. And that has literally been stripped from Canadians as we what? Try to save the planet? We're all trying to save the planet. But at the end of the day, we need jobs. We need opportunity. Our kids need vision. This is what you can get if you do this. Instead, we're, we're trying to set up tamp, uh, tents and uh, encampments. I know it's a problem. I don't pretend to have the solution. But I'm not sure this does anything but uh, kick it down the road. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, how people expect to handle all of this in three months' time, four months' time when the cold weather arrives. I think it's very, very, very limited vision. Once again, we are talking about something that just breaks your heart. And at one time, we would never talk about this, or rarely. It's an anomaly to talk about a police shooting in Canada. Now we have had 10 in eight months, a 10th officer killed on the job. Uh, officers from across the country gathered in Ottawa, marched in unison, a solemn parade for the funeral for Ontario Provincial Police Sergeant Eric Mueller. 10th officer killed on the job in Canada in the last eight months. To talk more about all of this, Mike Drolet is with us, uh, Global News, and with us now. Mike, thank you for the time. Uh, boy, another somber occasion. Are, are we growing numb to this, or does it still make an incredible impact when we see this? Well, I really hope it makes an incredible impact because this is, it's unbelievable, really. It's, I mean, we've, over the last like 30, 40 years, uh, we've averaged about 2.7 officers killed in line of duty across Canada, not just Ontario, Canada, uh, every year. Um, and we were at uh, nine since September. We're saying nine. Uh, I know a lot right. of people are saying 10, but uh, the 10th actually died in a car accident on the yes. way to work. So it's not yep. quite the same thing, obviously. Uh, so we're saying that there's nine officers that have been killed in line of duty. Uh, it, I mean, the reasoning, I mean, a lot of people are pointing at bail reform. Uh, Bill C-75, which was passed in 2019, has been a huge uh, uh, issue for the Conservatives. Uh, I mean, they've talked about other uh, amendments to it this week. 
uh, which the conservatives don't like and the, the liberals think are is, is enough. Uh, but then also the mental health crisis. There's been a lot mm. of, of issues with people here. I mean, in Toronto, we've had a huge mental health crisis with the, with the TTC, with the subway system. Yeah. And, and it's there for everyone to see. So, yeah, people should care about this because if the police aren't able to stay safe, then there's really there's a lot less hope for the rest of us. And, and, and that's something that we should all care about. Uh, as you said, many have complained uh, about bail reform and need, is needed here. And again, this is about repeat violent offenders. Uh, we certainly know that um, uh, the liberals uh, have reversed a, a bit of this and, and, and tried to redesign this. Is this going to make a difference? Is it, What's the reaction to uh, these reforms? It seems they're backtracking a bit. Well, the conservatives have are laughing at it. I mean, the new... Originally, Bill C-75 passed in 20, 2019 was what they put it in place to to make it a little bit uh, more sensible to um, uh, communities that are overrepresented in the prison system, like aboriginals uh, and uh, the black community, um, because there was just far too many people who were being denied bail and possibly because of of their their, their background. So uh, but what they found is obviously is there's far too many people who are out on the street and a lot of these cases with the police dying uh, have been uh, people who are given bail and they probably shouldn't have been given bail because they were violent yeah. offenders. So Bill C-48, which is what the uh, the liberals have put in place this week, they've suggested that giving putting the reverse onus on the accused, anybody who has uh, who's been convicted of a similar offense with the last five years, like, you know, a violent offender, they instead of having the uh, the crown having to prove that they should stay in jail, they have to prove that they are good enough to be able to be released. So that's what that is. Now, whether or not either that works, it will work or not remains to be seen, but that's kind of where we're at right now. But I mean, I think the one thing that is uh, irrefutable is that there is a problem. Um, This isn't a gun issue. This is, this is Mm. not a gun issue. A lot of people say, Oh, guns, guns. No, it's not a gun issue. This is a societal problem that we are dealing with, uh, with mental health, um, anger towards cops is a huge thing. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was interviewing a guy yesterday about the housing crisis, of all things. And he lives in downtown Toronto. And he was telling me, like, two months ago, uh, he was walking his, uh, he was out with his stroller with his two-year-old son on a Sunday morning. And uh, some guy on a bike bumped into him and he said, hey, what's wrong with you? The guy lost his mind, started yelling and screaming at him and reached into his bag and pulled out a gun and mm. showed it to him and said, you're lucky I, I don't have time for this today, and then moved on. It was on camera. Wow. Uh, people witnessed it. It happened. The guy eventually got arrested, but guess what happened to him? He what, didn't spend a day in jail, Yeah. and he was eventually he was just released, and he'll have a more of a criminal wow. record, but this is the problem that we have right now. Uh, is there any more work going to be done on bail reform? Uh, do the Liberals think that this is it, or, um, or are they going to backtrack some more on this? It seems, I mean, this is what they have put in place. Uh, so they seem to think that this is the thing that's going to fix sort of the problems that have arisen over the last few years. Uh, obviously, the Conservatives think the exact opposite. And, uh, and you know, Pierre Poiliev was quite vocal. Uh, over the last few days in Ottawa about the need to be able to keep violent offenders uh, behind bars. Now, criminologists are sort of split on this, whether or not this is going to create like a bigger problem, because if, if you keep people in jail, apparently 
they're more likely to offend. Uh, I mean, it, it's complicated. It's very complicated. And uh, criminologists will have to be able to dissect that one for you. And you got to think how this is uh, going to concern uh, services regarding recruitment. I mean, who's going to want to do this if everybody's spitting on them? And then, um, you know, now all of a sudden their lives are more in danger. Right? And recruitment must be a massive issue. Well, they have had a problem recruiting over the last number of years. Uh, in, I mean, there's this is this is an issue now. But the big issue over the last number of years has been everybody has a camera. It is an extremely yeah. difficult job being a police officer right now because it doesn't matter how you approach a situation. It seems there's always somebody there with a camera yelling and screaming and saying, I've got you on camera. I've got you on camera. And there's no end to the number of people who are just going up uh, and for TikTok videos or something. There's somebody who does a TikTok mm -hmm. video where they go up and they get into a police officer's face. And they're saying, oh, I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed to do this. And they're pushing the boundaries to the point where the police yeah. officer ends up having to, you know, arrest the person for, you know, for uh, for whatever crime the guy's committed. But he's uh, it, it's this is it's it's a problem. It's a huge problem. And it's I mean, I wouldn't. Would you want to be a cop right now? No, I don't think not at so. all. Not in and this know, environment. And I know lots that are. Uh, Mike Drolet is with us from Global News. Make sure you're watching Global National tonight for more on all of this. As another Ontario police officer, Ontario Provincial Police Sergeant Eric Mueller is uh, laid to rest. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Coming out of this global pandemic, many have been trying to scratch their head and figure out what is going on. Obviously, we've seen inflation go through the roof and then stabilize a little bit. What is high as 8% now down around 4.4. Groceries uh, still a major issue. Housing as well. And the Bank of Canada rate, mortgages, also a concern. Economists at Desjardins Capital Markets have issued a dark warning about how much more damage high interest rates could inflict on the mortgage and housing market. And in a new report, have called this a ticking time bomb. The detonation time, they argued, still a couple of years in the future. To talk more about all of this is David Parkinson and the, his latest, Mortgage Debt, a Ticking Time Bomb as Renewals Come Up. Economists warn. David is the economics columnist for the Globe and Mail and with us now. David Parkinson, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing great, Scott. I hope you're well, too. David, we talked about, uh, you know, even uh, just a few months ago, people were saying, you know what, just get a, a one-year uh, one mortgage or so because rates are liable to come down again in the future. Now we're talking about a ticking time bomb. Where are we with this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that first part is probably true. We might be, um, you know, we might be a few months perhaps into early next year before we start to see rates coming down. Um, but the issue here is the timing of when mortgages uh, get renewed. I mean, um, you know, when people take out their mortgages, they don't typically take them out for, for a year, but mo most mortgages in uh, in this country are five-year mortgages. And especially mm -hmm. during the pandemic, when rates were particularly low, people were locking in for five years. Uh, the result is that a lot of the rate increase that we have already seen has not hit the market yet. Um, by the time we get out to 2025 and 2026, though, those five-year mortgages that were taken out at the bottom of the rate uh, cycle are going to be facing a lot higher rates. And uh, 
Um, as you pointed out, Desjardins put out a report, uh, an economist by the name of Royce Mendez has done some great work on this and put out a report on this earlier this week. The Bank of Canada today um, more or less confirmed um, the numbers that uh, Mr. Mendez was talking about in terms of the, the size of some of the uh, the increases that people are, are going to face unless they can um, you know, find ways to to renegotiate, uh, perhaps make some lump sum payments. But regardless, this is going to cost uh, uh, pretty much all mortgage holders um, once those renewals come up. So down a bit and then up by 2025. Is that the prediction here? Yeah, that's kind of what's what's going to happen because we're in sort of some of the mortgages that uh, that were taken out kind of kind of just before the pandemic were actually at higher rates than we'd seen um, yeah. for a few years, and then um, you know so there, it might be a bit of a wash for some of those when they hit renewals, but the ones that hit when the rates dropped to rock bottom when uh, when COVID nineteen came in, the Bank of Canada cut its rate down to uh, 0.25% record lows. Um, And of course, mortgage rates came along with it. Um, You know, there's a combination of soaring house prices and uh, and very cheap mortgages that are going to, uh, you know, at much higher rates is going to mean, you know, substantial increases in uh, in monthly payments for, uh, again, pretty much anybody who's still got a mortgage um, is going to be is going to be facing, um, you know, some substantial increases in their uh, in their monthly costs. So those, for example, that would have something due in 2025, uh, wise to start thinking about renewing earlier before that jump happens. Many don't wait to go the first, the full five years. They'll jump in at four and start looking for uh, a better deal and such. Is that the, is that really the suggestion at this point? Well, I, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily, um, I mean, there, there's often costs uh, involved in, uh, in, yeah, you know, early uh, early re-upping often come with penalties, um, and I mean, this, this is not an area I'm particularly an expert in. I'm, you know, sort of more looking at the big economic question, uh, the big yeah. economic picture. Um, but, but yeah, I think part of the issue is you're probably going to get lower rates the longer you wait. But the fact of the matter is, pretty much no matter what, rates are not going back down to what they were in 2020 and 2021. It, they are yeah. certainly going more expensive when when people hit renewals. Of course, some people have been working on variable rate mortgages, and some of those have already been hit um, because their their rates move with the Bank of Canada's rate, and so those have already been going up. So uh, a significant portion of of the marketplace, I think it's about a third of of the mortgage marketplace have already already been hit by significant increases. But a lot of those variable rate mortgages are basically on fixed payments, even though the rate varies. So that means you've been, the payment doesn't go up as the interest rate goes up, but those people have been paying more and more uh, towards interest and less and less towards the principal of their loan, Um, which means that when, when it comes due, they're not only going to have um, a higher interest rate that they're going to look at when those expire and they, and they need to, uh, uh, to renew their mortgages. Not only are they going to have a higher interest rate, but they're also going to have a bigger principal than they expected to have. So the debt itself is going to be bigger than it would have been otherwise. Uh, what is the message from these, uh, from these economists to the Bank of Canada, do you think? Well, um, I talked with Mr. Mendez the other day, and, and basically, uh, you know, one of his points is that, you know, if there's a magic bullet here, the Bank of Canada is the one who holds it. If it cuts rates sooner 
and cuts, cuts interest rates deeper when it starts cutting, um, it is going to mean that when people hit their, um, you know, they hit their renewal dates, um, they're going to be faced with a lower interest rate than they would otherwise. Now, that's not the Bank of Canada's priority with interest rates. Um, it's aware that yeah. it's doing damage to a lot of homeowners. It also believes that this is necessary to bring inflation down from, as you said, 4.4% down to 2%, which is its target. It's been its target since the 1990s. It remains its target. So ultimately, it realizes it's doing damage. It's willing to live with that as long as the damage doesn't become too severe. Um, but yeah, there's there's an overhang here for, for many years from this. But that's, again, the Bank of Canada's priority is to get uh, inflation back to low stable rates. How do you balance this, David? Because um, if the rates stay the same or go lower, will that not fuel inflation, which we're trying to bring down? Well, the idea is that, that uh, I mean, right now we do have, um, you know, we do have very high, uh, you know, significantly high interest rates that are restrictive, as economists talk about it. They are actually designed to slow the economy, to slow demand. And this mortgage hit that we're talking about is all part of that equation. The idea is if individuals and households are paying more towards their mortgage, they have less money to spend on other things. That slows down demand in the economy, and that is disinflationary. That does lower the inflation rate. Um, so this is all part of the equation. Now, of course, the balancing act is you don't want to push it so far that people start to become in large numbers significantly distressed and, and that, you know, you start to see defaults on mortgages, things like that in the extreme that does so much economic damage that, that you've basically overdone it. So that's what the Bank of Canada is going to be looking at over the next year or two is, you know, how much of that pressure can they take off interest rates to sort of, you know, give a break to consumers and bring a, uh, give a break to mortgage uh, holders while at the same time, you know, not taking it off so quickly that it allows inflation to uh, fire up again. David Parkinson has been with us, economics columnist with the Globe and Mail. His latest mortgage debt, a ticking, uh, ticking time bomb as renewals come up, economists warn. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Hey, my pleasure. Take care. What sort of festivities going on over the course of this long weekend? Let's bring in Ryan McHugh, Manager of Tourism and Events with the City of Hamilton and is here now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Ryan, you know, obviously, uh, we've been going through a global pandemic for the last three years. Uh, we're back to somewhat normal, whatever that is, or the new normal or, or what have you. Is there more going on this year than there has been in the past year? Uh, there absolutely is. I am uh, thrilled to say that since the first time since 2019, we're actually going to have the Victoria Day fireworks at Dundas Driving Park. So that'll be on Sunday, May 21st. Uh, so this is just an amazing event, which is supported by the city of Hamilton, but presented by the Rotary Club of Dundas Valley Sunrise. So this is just a, an amazing organization, which has uh, ran this event for over 10 years. And, and Scott, it is a free event. Uh, but cash donations to support the Rotary Club uh, are gratefully accepted at the gate, and uh, there will be an ATM as well for those who need to get their hands on some cash. Are you expecting more? You know, we've seen whether it's the Sound of Music Festival or what have you, once these things get back up and running, um, uh, people are anxious to get out and about and, and appreciate them a bit more. Yeah, it definitely is. I think everybody, uh, you know, hopefully after COVID, uh, the restrictions that are in place, there's definitely a pent-up demand, and as we come into 
the Victoria Day long weekend. Uh, looks like the weather is going to be great. I, I think everyone's eager to get outside. And uh, the fireworks, um, they start at 9.30, but programming at Dundas um, Driving Park starts at 4. There'll be food trucks, live music, face painting, glow sticks, and of course, the professional fireworks play display at 9.30. So it's going to be a, a great evening. Wow, this is pretty cool. I mean, you know, as you said, fireworks starting around 9.30-ish, but man, the park's open late afternoon, 4 p.m., uh, live music, that, that sort of stuff starts. Is that new or is that is that part of it all the time? Is it growing? Uh, so it is growing, uh, definitely. And uh, and again, so uh, last year, because of um, COVID restrictions, uh, the group which puts on the Rotary uh, Club of Dundas, uh, they held it a little later just because they needed more time to plan. So this time with a clear runway and no COVID restrictions, they're they're going big and uh, it's going to be on the Sunday as is usual. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a great time for uh, the whole family. So please uh, come on out, enjoy the beautiful weather, the fireworks, the face painting and some excellent food as well. All right. So tell everybody where Dundas Driving Park is and also the situation with parking and such. What's the best way to get there? Yeah, uh, definitely. So it's uh, 71 Cross Street and that's in Dundas. So there is uh, limited parking at the park itself. But nice thing, the municipal parking lots there in Dundas will have free parking. Uh, So it'll just be a little stroll. But again, it's going to be a beautiful night. And HSR is providing extra service on the Delaware route to get you uh, in and out of the events. So, uh, you know, come early, uh, come, uh, you know, make sure, just give yourself enough time to park and get into the event. Wouldn't want anyone missing those amazing fireworks. All right. And what about restrictions? Uh, lots of fireworks there, but you're not supposed to bring your own or any of that you, stuff. You got it. I promise you the fireworks will be uh, spectacular. So no need to bring your personal fireworks, sparklers, drones. And also, if you bring a pet, uh, encouraged, of course, bring the dogs out. Uh, but please have them under a leash just because there will be a, a big crowd and lots of children. So we just want to make sure everyone has a safe and pleasant time. Uh, this will be way better than the burning schoolhouse that you used to have in your backyard is what you're telling <laughs> that, us. That's for sure. Absolutely. As much as there's sentimental memories there, this will be, uh, this will be a great show. <laughs> All right. So what about other stuff going on in and around and about the city over the course of the long weekend? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, lots of, um, you know, in Hamilton, we have, we're blessed with many attractions. So encourage people, the Royal Botanical Gardens, the uh, Warplane Heritage Museum, uh, so African Lion Safari. So, so many just great, uh, you know, attractions to see. And as well, our many parks and trails. Um, you know, if you go to tourismhamilton.com, we have a waterfall guide. That's something that uh, people come from far and wide to see our beautiful waterfalls. Just make sure um, you know, follow the instructions and do it safely. As well, we have many trails uh, on our website. We have a trail guide. And if you um, you know looking to grab a lunch or a beer on a patio, we also have um, you know a patio guide and downtown guides. So whatever your interests are, uh, whether you're indoors, outdoors, museums, active, uh, I'd encourage you to go to tourismhamilton.com and check out all of the offerings that are going on this long weekend. Remember the days, Ryan, when we were trying to get people interested in the uh, city of waterfalls and, you know, you really should check these out. Did you have any idea that it would turn into what it has to the point yeah. where you, you got to monitor, it's, you got to restrict it, you got to manage it? It's incredible. And and it is um, important, you know, because the um, just the um, have to protect uh, the environment and the residents in the area want to make sure everyone's safe. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely now it's a, hey, make sure you do this safely as opposed to, hey, come on out and check out Hamilton. I think the message is out there and uh, it's not a secret anymore, as you, to your point, Scott. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, Ryan McHugh with his manager of tourism and events uh, with the city of Hamilton, uh, hamilton.ca, to find out more of what is going on this weekend uh, in the Hammer. And, of course, don't forget Dundas Driving Park, uh, the big, uh, the return of the big fireworks display, and uh, everything else that uh, goes along with it is back as well. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck this year. Thank you so much. Have a great uh, Victoria Day long weekend to you and your viewers. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the federal government to scrap its impending second carbon tax following today's parliamentary budget officer report. To talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano is with us. Canadian Taxpayer Federation Federal Director and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Franco, what stood out to me today on your uh, press release that you've issued, you know, breaking it all down, telling us how much it's going to cost and such, but then towards the bottom of the article, you say that the parliamentary budget officer also notes that, and this is a quote, Canada's own emissions, Canada's own emissions are not large enough to material to materially impact climate change. To me, this is the most pressing point that Canadians do not get and why we are not helping the world get off coal with our cleaner liquid natural gas that the world is demanding right now yeah. is just nuts. Instead, this government has convinced Canadians if we shut off the taps, we're going to save the planet. And what does this note or what does this point from the parliamentary budget officer where they say Canada's own emissions are not large enough to mater- materially impact climate change? Does that have any impact at all, Franco? Well, I think it should, right? I know all of your listeners. In fact, I know all Canadians. Every Canadian that I've ever spoke to cares about the environment, right? Yeah. Everyone does. Yep. But the thing is, and this is what is so clear about the parliamentary budget officer, is that they could raise taxes so high in Canada to completely shut down all of our industries. What would that do? It would mean Nothing. so much pain. Yeah, well, it would mean so much pain for so many families and wouldn't do anything for the global environment. In fact, it could make things worse because we would be taxing businesses and industries to leave Canada and to set up shop elsewhere. So we're already paying a carbon tax, which is massively making things more expensive. And folks, get ready, because this July, happy Canada Day, everyone, the federal government is bringing in the second carbon tax. So we're being taxed left, right, and center here. And that little note at the bottom just proves, like, this is all pain without the gain. How has that point that Canada's own emissions are not large enough to materially impact climate change, why is that getting buried? When at the end of the day, the whole idea here, the reason we're paying through our nose is to save the planet. But for some reason, that point that I just mentioned gets buried. No Canadian seems to be aware of that. Well, I don't know. I don't know why certain uh, groups who are pushing carbon taxes and things of that nature, I'm not sure why they aren't talking about it. Maybe they have their own agendas. I'm not sure why the federal government and the reigning Liberal Party isn't talking about it. Maybe it has its own agenda. You know, I'm not going to pretend to speak like I know what's going on in their heads. I am here in the the, uh, opposition party. The Conservative Party is starting to talk like this because we are not going to tax our way into a clean environment. We are not going to tax our way um, to solving an issue that is global when Canada makes up such a minuscule amount of global emissions. What we are doing, though, 
is we're making it nearly impossible for some Canadians to afford fueling up their cars on the way to work. And remember this, folks, the carbon tax also impacts farmers, impacts truckers. So that means every time you go to the grocery store and you have to wonder whether you get the package of ground beef or you get the uh, jug of milk, that's because of carbon taxes in part. I remember saying this during the McGuinty government, that this was less about saving the planet and more about a revenue generator for the government of the day. Uh, in other words, we're not seeing the targets go down. We're not seeing really anything change, yet these costs continue to go up. Is this being used to generate revenue just into the general coffers? You know, I mean, as you said, Canadians are very sensitive to climate change. Hey, I want to save the planet. Yeah, there's my buck. Uh, is this being used to generate revenue for general coffers? Well, you know, I actually think it's it's more of a vote-buying scheme. I think it's more of a vote-buying scheme from the politicians, right? Because the people who uh, they sell this to, like, quite frankly, the people who are in support of this are the people who live downtown, who live downtown, who live in an office or in a, sorry, in a <laughs> condo, in an apartment building, who work on Zoom, right? They don't pay the cost. You know who pays the cost? <laughs> The people who make their food, right? The people who live in the country, the people who have to commute to work in the suburbs. I'm sure many of your listeners are the ones who have to pay this cost, whether they're driving to and from work or to bring their kids to hockey. But the people who live in like downtown in a condo on Zoom, they're not really paying the full cost of this, but their neighbors are. And can I just bring up the full cost of this? Because I think it's important. Yep. Right. Carbon tax number one, carbon tax number one is costing the average Ontario family this year. $478 more than the rebates they get back. $478 more this year. Carbon tax number two by 2030 will, will cost $495. Okay? So in 2030, folks, the average family, the two carbon taxes from Mr. Trudeau, will cost the average family in Ontario more than $2,300 in 2030. That's an annual cost, more than $2,300. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, talking about July 1st, once again, another carbon tax, and the Parliamentary Budget Officer saying Canada's own emissions not enough to have an impact on climate change. Franco, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me on today. Hamilton Today, we're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked uh, a little bit about the G7 leaders gathering in Japan for their 49th summit. It comes at what some say make uh, some may call a historic turning point in the world. What are the priority items of this summit? Let's bring in Dr. Ella Kokatsis, uh, Director of Accountability, G7 and G20 Research Groups, author of Keeping International Commitments, Compliance, Credibility, and G7 Summits, co-author of The Global Governance on Climate Change, and is with us now. Ella, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Appreciate being on the show. So what do you think the top priority is of this agenda? What, do you, what are they going to be talking about? What's the big uh, issue here? Yeah, I think what makes this particular G7 significant, and of course it happens every year, it's been ongoing for 49 years now, is that the leaders are really confronting two really important existential threats. And the first is the threat of nuclear weapons escalation arising not only from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is what 
we kind of immediately think about recently, but also from mm. Iran's drive to acquire nuclear weapons and a nuclear arm North Korea, which is constantly threatening its neighbors. And of course, China with its military exercises around Taiwan. And the second critical threat is that of climate change as global temperatures approach a critical tipping point. And here, I think the G7 are going to focus really um, specifically on how they can individually and as a group accelerate their pathways to net zero by 2050, which is the goal, or preferably well before then, by making um, some pretty significant advances in order to move towards um, a carbon neutral economy. So definitely a lot on the agenda, but those are going to be the two high priority issues this weekend. Is there pressure on Canada to supply liquid natural gas to try to get the world off coal? I think there will be some pressure to do so. Um, obviously, we're seeing, um, you know, part of sanctions against Russia is to try to get um, less dependence on, on Russian energy flowing out of Russia and into, into parts of Europe. So that's obviously increasing demand for oil supplies um, from other providers. And, and Canada, as a major oil and LNG exporter, will be high on the list. So um, that hasn't necessarily come up as one of the discussion points, but it could be part of Justin Trudeau's bilateral meetings with some of his um, summit partners, definitely. Uh, do you think there will or he will feel pressure to open Canada up a bit more on this to try to alleviate some of that pressure? Uh, it could be. And again, it's not the kind of discussion that I see necessarily happening around the table with all seven leaders. I mean, there's mm -hmm. um, an agenda that's already been laid out by the Japanese and, and they pretty much stick to script when it comes to finalizing the language and the communique. But I think it's certainly one of those um, issues that will be taken up with with some of his partners during his bilateral meetings. So we could see a joint declaration, for example, coming out on on. Um, you know, trade agreements between Canada and any one of its um, G7 partners on LNG exports. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily rule it out, but it hasn't been identified as a key priority theme at this point. How much emphasis put on trade and finding other trade partners for everybody other than China? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's going to be a huge um, focus uh, at this meeting. And, and we see that um, the the Japanese particularly have invited um, what they're calling the Global South to this meeting. And um, Japan's prime minister has been pursuing deeper cooperation with the Global South recently. And I think um, the prime minister's intentions are pretty clear here. And that's to convince leaders in these regions of the world that the G7 is still relevant and that it can serve as a viable alternative to economic cooperation with China, particularly on issues related to, you know, energy and technology, innovation and financing for these mega, you know, infrastructure projects that China is currently backing in a lot of these developing world uh, countries. So Japan has effectively set itself up as a, as a bridge, so to speak, between the G7 and the Global South when it plays host this weekend to world leaders. And a lot of that is going to be in direct response to China's play. Uh, how much chatter is there about uh, China interference in other uh, other governments, other uh, countries and such? Obviously, that's been in the news quite a bit here in Canada, where he, we hear that, it, you know, it's, it's virtually a, a problem all over. How much of that is going to be focused on and, and what we can do to protect ourselves from that? Yeah, I think that the question of Chinese interference is definitely not something that is exclusive only to Canada. I think other European countries are definitely at risk 
um, the Japanese as well, the Americans, absolutely. Um, so again, this is an, an issue that is quite delicate. Now, the Chinese are not part of the discussions at this meeting, but they are part of the G20. And so when the G20 meet in India um, later this year, I suspect that Chinese interference issues may be taken up again in the context of bilateral meetings um, to help sort of facilitate a diplomatic dialogue between not only Canada and China, but other countries that are being impacted by um, Chinese interference. So again, not one of these um, priority themes that has been identified by Japan, but something that's certainly not going to be off the table and probably open to, again, bilateral or trilateral discussions. So what is the most important thing? I mean, is it world order? Is this a turning point? We've heard that uh, we've heard that phrase used uh, recently of late. What's the difference in this G7 as compared to others in the past? Yeah, I think a few things. I mean, security issues are going to be top of mind, obviously, um, you know, as we look to increasing threats from um, from Russia and, you know, nuclear escalation or threats of nuclear escalation and from, from other nuclear powers, North Korea and, and Iran, as I said. But there's also this heavy, heavy focus on, on climate change and this, you know, pathway to net zero and how do we get there. So issues around economic and energy security are going to be front and center. Pathways to net zero emissions, which tie into, of course, the you know, the green energy transition and greening our economies, not only here in Canada, but also internationally. Um, also respect for human rights. I mean, what sets the G7 apart from the G20 is that they have this common grounding in, you know, respect for human rights and, and questions around gender um, equity and continued adherence to international rules and norms. So I think this is going to be an opportunity for the G7 to really, you know, come together and say, you know, behind all these issues, these big global issues that we're addressing is that we do have this fundamental respect for human rights and that we are going to continue to adhere to international rules and norms, even if the other big players aren't going to do so. And that could be like at the you know G20 meeting later this year. But certainly in, at this meeting, that's going to be one of the underlying themes that they're definitely working together um, as a group who are tied to these common principles and norms. So does you know, the, sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go no, finish. no, no, please. Does the instability that we're seeing in the world right now, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, what have you, does this strengthen the alliance that perhaps had dropped his guard in the last uh, several years? hundred percent. And we've seen this group come together, not only this weekend, as they do every year and have for the last 49 years. And what's interesting about the G7 is that all the leaders always attend in person all the time. So there hasn't been an instance where leaders actually not been part of this discussion. Some have come early, others have left early. Um, some have come late, you know, depending on national circumstances, but they all show up at the table. And what makes it so relevant for the leaders and so important is that they meet face to face. So during the pandemic, they didn't have that opportunity. For example, they had their meetings virtually. So it doesn't have the same kind of, you know, cachet as meeting face to face and being able to, to really hash these out, you know, across the table from one another. Um, you know, but it also speaks to the importance of this meeting. I mean, there's, you know, there's, um, it's three days. Um, they did scale back to two days 
um, for a few years and now they're back up to three. And that's because we're seeing, you know, a really significantly stacked agenda with a lot of interconnected global issues that the G7 and the G7 alone really at this point in history need to come together and make some pretty big decisions on. So um, I think it's the right meeting at the right time with the right configuration of world leaders. Dr. Ella Kokatsis with us, Director of Accountability, G7 and G20 Research Groups, author of Keeping International Commitments, Compliance, Credibility, and the G7 Summits, co-author of The Global Governance of Climate Change. Ella, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. G7 is uh, getting underway this weekend in Japan. The Prime Minister stopping in South Korea to talk minerals, uh, liquid natural gas, <laughs> and trade between South Korea and Canada. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you uh, for uh, bringing me on, and uh, even a small wait. Uh, sort of like what Korea, South Korea is doing with Canada, waiting for LNG that will never get there because we have a Prime Minister who likes to block those pipelines. Uh, you know, we were just talking to Franco Terrazano uh, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he was breaking down the next carbon tax, uh, which comes into effect July 1st. And this stood out because it, it was reflecting on what the parliamentary budget officer had to say. And this is actually a quote in their article. And it says, uh, Canada's own, hang on, hang on a sec, Canada's own emissions are, Canada's own emissions are not large enough to materially impact climate change. Canada's own emissions are not large enough to materially impact climate change. So, in other words, if we shut everything down, tax the hell out of everybody, it ain't going to make a hill of beans difference to saving the planet. Dan, why is this word not getting out? We could be helping in so many other ways. Instead, we're virtually signaling, and the, and the parliamentary budget officer says, shut it all off, it ain't going to matter. How do we miss didn't this? even go far enough. I mean, look, the PBO could have gone further. It was using even Stefan Guibault, the Minister of uh, Environment's own facts and figures, which we have proven not once but twice to be false and flawed and distorted. And distorted. Look, this gets worse because not only can't Canada provide natural gas to other parts of the world to reduce their carbon emissions, so the Indias, the Chinas, yes, the South Koreas, the Japans, etc., what we are actually doing with this clean fuel standard, and I want all your listeners to really pay attention to this. In order to achieve that goal of dropping emissions at our refineries, we have to buy more ethanol from the United States. That ethanol is produced by releasing carbon, by increasing the carbon footprint. So basically, we're telling them we're offloading the responsibility of the Americans saying, we'll increase your carbon just so we can have more ethanol. And by the way, Anybody who works in the automotive industry knows the more ethanol you put in a, in a vehicle, the crappier the mileage you get. So you're going to have to spend more. Yeah. You consume more gasoline in order to do what you just did this time last year. There, this makes absolutely no sense, but it demonstrates the extent to which political, uh, you know, political turpitude. These folks that are you know misadventuring are basically taking the economy, throwing it in the garbage. Not even going to hit their targets. They don't care, but they are going to impoverish you and I because when we have to use ethanol produced from corn, which is usually the feedstock, we have to displace other forms of food. Guess what's going to happen to food prices for all the trendies out there who say they don't drive? It is going to hurt, and don't take my word for it. The PBO has said this. I've done this now for two or three years, Scott. We've talked about it here on this very station. I am disappointed 
that uh, people in Hamilton, Toronto have not waken up. I think they are, they're starting to get it, but two carbon taxes, one on top of the other, that's unacceptable. And it's not helping, said the parliamentary budget officer, to save us from climate change. And all Canadians are aware of climate change. The majority of us want something to be done about this. We understand the problem. Where we differ is how. But, again, this is not helping, which would lead you to believe, and I go back to the McGinty days on this, this is nothing but a way for Justin Trudeau to raise money for the coffers to fill his government with. I mean, it's 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 not helping the environment. It's just filling government coffers. You know, that is the point, is that this is not uh, at all a sensible policy. And by the way, uh, for the smart people out there, the universities are say, well, you know, well, carbon pricing is very important. Yeah, okay. William Nordhaus is the world's best economist, won a Nobel Prize on uh, carbon taxes. And he got that a couple of years ago. And you know what he said? Please, if you're going to have a carbon tax, don't distort, don't distort the price discovery, the important function that carbon taxes in sending a price signal by adding more regulations and other taxes to frustrate that because you're not going to achieve the first objective. So not only are we going to get a reduction, are we not going to get a reduction in emissions, we're going to make the country a lot poorer. 9, there's probably going to be about 93,000 jobs lost. Our GDP, from our report from last year, you can see it on affordableenergy.ca. We're going to have a press release on that in about an hour. 90, a 1.3% decrease in our GDP and an additional 1300 bucks for every worker in a house will come out of your pocket. That's over and above the existing carbon tax, which will probably sap you for about uh, roughly about 1800 bucks. So I don't know how so, this is going to work out, but it's not going to work out well for you and I. We're kind of short of time here, but how does South Korea get our liquid natural gas when Germany doesn't, even Japan doesn't get it? <laughs> We're waiting for the coastal gas link to come up and get running because, of course, uh, while we sat in our hands and naval gaze and allowed foreign organizations to come in and block our pipelines, vandalize them without consequence, the United States quietly saying that they were big on the environment and stuff like that, approved 19 projects of which eight are already up and running because we sat in our duff and we allowed uh, fanatics to basically tie up and hogtie our ability to get clean energy to the rest of the world. It's unfortunate, uh, but you can't build squat in Canada. It's one of the reasons Canadians are seeing more and more of us visit food banks and our standard living decreasing. Whether we like it or not, it's not a political statement. It is a reality, and it's staring all of us in the face, and it was completely avoidable. A vote for the Liberal NDP coalition has impoverished a lot more Canadians, and it's totally unnecessary. It's a self-inflicted wound, like housing. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This has been talked about for a while, and it appears that um, most parties want it, although there seems to be some friction. And it, it obviously is going to be a very complex ball of twine to unravel. The region appeal going to be dissolved by January 2025. The government has announced that the province has revealed its plans to restructure the local and regional governments and convert Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon into single-tier municipalities. What does that mean? Is everybody happy? Why are we doing it? Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. 
This is kind of uh, interesting, Colin, in the sense that um, it, it seems that some want it, most want it, but there's still a, a, an awful lot of discussion to be had. Why, why is this happening, first of all? Why do this? Well, Mississauga has been pushing for this since the early 2000s, right? Uh, former Mayor Hazel McCallion really started this campaign because they felt like they were putting too much into Peel Region and not getting enough out of it. Mississauga, of course, is the bigger city of, out of Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. They've got the largest tax base, and as a result, uh, they, they feel like they've been really propping up the other two municipalities and not getting that return on investment. So the, the ultimate question then for the government was what to do. And, and this has been one that's been faced by multiple governments because Hazel McCallion had been pushing for this, um, you know, for, for two decades. The reason it's happening now, though, the context is housing. The Ford government has made this pledge to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years by 2031. And they're really languishing in that because you know, builders aren't building as much because of a variety of factors. So they've been really taking all these extraordinary steps to try to speed it up. So if you're a developer and you go to Peel region or York region or Halton region, Niagara region, and, and you want to build something, you've got to go through two levels of approvals, one from the municipality and another one from the region. And now the government wants to eliminate that entire top tier government so that the planning process is just Mississauga, just Brampton, and just Caledon, so it can speed up everything. How does Brampton feel about this? I'm watching the news conference earlier, and Colin, you asked a great question. You brought up a neat point, saying that when one mayor talks, the other one's making faces. Do these two mayors get along? Uh, How does Brampton feel about this? On On its face, they get along, but once you kind of go beneath the surface, there is a lot of underlying tension there between the two. Brampton's mayor, Patrick Brown, had been pushing for a long time for an amalgamation of the region because he's terrified of what will happen if they separate from Peel. So currently, Brampton puts about 40 percent into Peel region, while Mississauga puts 60 percent into Peel region. You could see why Brampton has a problem with what's coming next. So Brampton has been trying to create the scenario where they say, look, we've paid for services and we've paid for infrastructure all across Peel region. And now if we separate, we won't have access to that infrastructure anymore as the city of Brampton. So he's saying somebody is going to have to owe us a ton of money, whether it's the city of Mm. Mississauga or the province of Ontario. He's not thrilled, but, you know, ultimately, if this is going to happen, I think Patrick Brown is going to try to extract as much as he can for Mississauga to make this work for them. So is he as interested in having his separate uh, entity for Brampton as long as he gets the compensation he feels he needs? Yes. I mean, you know, ultimately right now, legislation has been tabled at Queens Park. So, you know, Brampton really has no choice in this matter. The decision has been made. The uh, Independence Day is coming. And now it's just a matter of what that's going to look like in the divorce. That ultimately is going to be the big question. He wants some something out of this. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure whether, you know, this uh, transition panel that the Ford government has appointed to, to oversee this entire thing will actually give it to him. Mississauga's saying, well, hey, maybe we're owed something too, because they've been putting in a lot more into the region for the last 50 years than they've been getting out of it. So this is going to be a very messy divorce. And then there's Caledon, a smaller community of about hmm. 60 to 80,000 people they're saying, what about, what about us? They're, they're describing themselves as the child, the, 
the, the child in this divorce, and they're saying that hmm. they are, too are owed something uh, out, of, out of all of this. And they're all looking to the, the province, the premier and the government to say, you better make us whole because you're the one getting us into this. So what happens next, Colin? What happens next is this panel that will be appointed by the Ford government, paid for, ironically, by Mississauga residents. That panel will determine exactly what happens next. Where does all of the money go and who uh, determines um, you know, the, the assets? So they're, they're, they're going to be looking at Peel Region, Mississauga, Branton, and Caledon, trying to figure out how their budgets are set, trying to figure out how much money is really kind of connected or interconnected trying to figure out what assets they all share and how to split all of those up. And then also trying to figure out the you know, cost sharing for property taxes, right? Does there need to be one property tax for all those regions to pay to, for some shared services? Because at the end of the day, there are some services that you can't really untangle. Police, paramedics, public health, as an example. How do you really untangle those things? Those are some really big questions and challenges. But the key here. There's not a lot of time. The Ford government has given this about um, 19 months, mm. like a little over a year and a half. And so everyone's kind of looking at this thing. This is a really fast timeline uh, and to make a really big decision. Uh, and you take one service, for example, like policing, the Peel uh, Police Service. Does that continue? Does that get I- incorporated into something else, uh, whether it's Toronto or any ideas there? I guess that's still on the table, obviously. Exactly. I mean, there was one suggestion from Bonnie Crombie today that perhaps they still share that service and taxpayers, just like, you know, the, the education tax that's on your right. on your property taxes. Maybe they, they charge a police uh, services tax as an example. But but all of that is just speculation from from one mayor. Ultimately, we're going to have to see what this process looks like. And even that panel that's being appointed, there are a lot of questions. Is it going to be, you know, people who are loyal to the Ford conservatives? Is it going to have some representation from Brampton or or Mississauga? And are they going to be, you know, whispered into by various political entities looking to gain the most out of this process? That will be the most fascinating thing in this entire battle. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this, the divorce of Peel. Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. According to a new report, a lot of Ontarians don't see Hamilton as the best place to raise a child and age successfully, despite that being our motto. In a new article from the Smart Prosperity Institute called Who Will Swing the Hammer, the city of Hamilton, along with Burlington and Grimsby, find themselves at the center of a troubling paradox. Number one, Metro Hamilton has a pre-existing housing shortage and needs to double home building over the next decade to address this shortage and keep up with population growth. First question, how the hell did we get here? And the shortage of housing in Metro Hamilton has caused home prices and rents to rise higher than other communities. And number three, Metro Hamilton's high home prices and rents are pricing the workers needed to build these homes out of Hamilton. So uh, around and around we go. Let's bring in Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Policy and, and, and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute and an Assistant Professor in the Business, Economics, and Public Policy Group at Ivy Business School, Western University, and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you for having me. Mike, the first thing that stands out in this report to me is Hamilton needs to double 
its housing in order to even keep up to where we are. How did we get to such a terrible place where we have fallen so far behind? Yes, and this is this is a problem across uh, southern Ontario. That uh, traditionally Ontario had grown by about a hundred thousand people every year. Uh, since about 2016, that doubled. So before the pandemic, we were growing by about 200,000 people a year, and that was partly due to increased immigration and partly due to an international student boom. Last year, and that uh, slowed down somewhat during the pandemic as, as borders closed. But last year, we added 450,000 people to Ontario, but we didn't change the rate at which we, we built homes. So we've had this uh, you know, big sort of pressure cooker over the last uh, decade or so where our population growth rates keep going up and up and up, but, but, our, but our housing starts are, are pretty flat. So that's caused uh, house prices to go up across southern Ontario, and in particular uh, in Hamilton, where, where home prices have doubled in the last few years. Does this all come back to not building enough homes to just not keeping up with uh, the projections or, or, or things that, that we knew were coming? Um, uh, can we build our way out of this? I, I, well, we're, we're, we're going to have to because the, the, the people are already here. And yeah, it is, a lot of it was just bad uh, planning. So not just on the municipal side, but uh, the, the province had an updated growth plan in 2017 uh, that didn't take into account uh, increased immigration targets, didn't take into account that our international student populations were exploding. And in fact, the, uh, the growth plan doesn't mention students once anywhere. So we, we have another re- uh, report that came out last year called Forecast for Failure, that uh, we, you know, we made these policy changes at the federal level, but the provinces and the municipalities never took them into account. And now the people are here. Um, and we need to figure out how to house everyone. So absolutely, we're going to need to build our way out of this. Uh, it seems that in the last couple of decades in this province, building has been a bad word. That it, whenever anything tries to get built, no, but it's urban expansion, it's urban sprawl. Building is a bad word. Do we have to change that attitude? Yeah, we, we, we absolutely do. And I do, you know, if I have any sort of optimism from this, that I do feel that that. Uh, that, that discussion is, is changing. So when the province had doubled uh, uh, the, the housing uh, targets uh, just recently, you know, I don't think that would, kind of thing would have been possible uh, even three or four years ago. So absolutely. And we're going to have to make some, some tough decisions that, uh, you know, when we start to build out more, you have those urban growth boundary discussions. But when we build up, we also have discussions. So uh, you know, there was a, a recent uh, set of high rises uh, that were going up in Mississauga. Uh, the, the the city blocked them, and now we have a municipal uh, zoning order from the province to get those built. So this is going to involve some tough choices, and we're going to have to recognize that stuff is need, going to need to be built in this province. Many environmentalists will say urban sprawl is a bad thing no matter which way you do it. The only way this can be addressed is by infill and and getting stuff built that's already within the city limits. Is that anywhere near enough to meet the demand? Well, we're we're going to have to have to make some tough choices. And I consider consider myself an environmentalist. We consider ourselves environmentalists at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Uh, but even the in- environmental movement is coming around to this. So, so Bill McKibben uh, in the United States, he, he was famous for being the guy who essentially blocked the Keystone XL pop- pipeline. He, even he has a piece in the Atlantic saying, you know what, environmentalists are going to have to start saying yes, uh, yes to some things because of 
because of the difficulty uh, of getting things built. So I think ultimately we need a we we need a diversified plan that is going to involve some infill and where needed is you know going to have to have some uh, some some building out. Uh, it's it's going to be a combination just because the the need is so large in this province. Why is urban sprawl such a bad phrase? Does that not equal progress? I, I mean, you know, it seems every new neighborhood I, I see in, in, you know, whether you're in Halton or, or Hamilton, wherever, um, you know, I can think of a neighborhood I'm in that's 20 years old. It's got big houses, small houses, detached houses. Uh, it's got townhouses. It's got mid-level high-rise and beautiful uh, bike paths and, and re- water reservoirs and parks that join it all together. Why is that bad? Yeah, so, so something like that isn't uh, bad, and I think that you raise a really important point that that we shouldn't treat all new development the same. It, it, it's about how how you do it, how you create those complete communities uh, with, with with parks, uh, you know, with the bike paths, with the uh, schools, and, and that sort of thing. What you what you want to avoid is the sort of uh, sea, you know, sea of nothing but McMansions. Yeah. And not just because yeah. that's bad from a land use perspective, but that's also uh, bad from a municipal cost perspective. That uh, all the new neighborhoods need uh, uh, need sewers and waters and so on. So building infill where you already have the the infrastructure in place keeps municipal taxes low relative to to, to building out on the periphery. So let's end this on a positive note, Mike. What's the solution? I know, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's the solution? What should we be looking for in these discussions? How do we move this forward? Yeah, so I, I think all levels of government need to be involved. So on the municipal side, uh, you know, we need the changes to zoning, approvals process. We need to get shovels in the ground faster. Uh, the, the provincial side plays a big, big role where, uh, you know, they can set the, the, the rules for the province as a whole. We've had three big housing supply bills in the last 13 months. More is coming. And I think the federal government plays a role. We had a piece in the Globe and Mail talking about tax changes uh, that the government could make to incentivize more uh, affordable apartment units from being built. So, so that's essentially what we need, a coordinated plan, all governments uh, working together, pulling in the same direction. And I think if we do that, we can hit that $1.5 million, uh, housing target from the Ford government. What about Hamilton specifically, you know, the phrase best place to raise a child and age successfully? It all sounds good, but man, is it happening? Well, so the good news is is that Hamilton is still attracting large numbers of of families coming in from the GTA. There is still that price differential between Hamilton and, say, a Mississauga or Brampton. But what we're Mm -hmm. also seeing is an increased out-migration from Hamilton. Uh, it's not surprising where where they're going to is places like St. Catharines and Thorold and and Brantford mm-hmm. and Stock and Tilsonburg because you can, you can get a lot more for your money there and that's gonna that's gonna going to be the challenge and who's leaving is a lot of young workers it's a lot of the yeah. electricians and uh, and carpenters that we need to build homes but it's also a lot of healthcare workers and once we start once Hamilton starts losing uh, nurses and personal support workers to Woodstock. They're not going to commute back to to Hamilton. You know, every community needs nurses. So if somebody can move uh, move to one of these communities and work locally, you know, that's a nurse that's not going to be working in Hamilton. Mike Moffat with us, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute and Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group at Ivy Business School, Western University, the latest in Smart Prosperity Institute. Who will swing the hammer? Uh, we'll see. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. 
Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott. uh, May 2-4 is here, and I've got myself a pack of hot dogs for grilling and a pack of fireworks. Now I just got to pray that I don't mix up the two. (laughs) 